3: Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey, everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. Perhaps no event defined the 20th century more than World War II. A battle of good versus evil, a story of atrocities we hope will never happen again. Of the 16 million Americans who served our nation around the globe during that war, Only about 167,000 are still alive today. 180 of these heroes are dying every single day. And with them go countless stories of heroism, of depravity that they witnessed, and of honor in which they participated, perhaps unmatched at any other time in history. Today, we're going to talk about their stories and the lessons we can all take from them as we walk through the arc of World War II with the filmmaker who has made it his life's mission to make sure the brave souls who fought and won that war for us are never forgotten. He's interviewed so many members of the greatest generation, he's lost count. His dozens of documentaries have taken him to the battlefields of Europe, the Pacific, and here at home in Hawaii, where a Sunday morning attack propelled America into World War II. Tim Gray is the founder and president of the World War II Foundation and a documentary filmmaker. Tim Gray, welcome to the show. So great to have you here. Thank you, Megan. It's a pleasure to meet you. Oh, the pleasure's all mine. I've enjoyed your work for a long, long time and uh, appreciate the personal touch you put on on everything you do, going right to the guys who fought these, this battle uh, and and getting their take on it before that's no longer possible. It's hard to imagine, right? That there will be a time on this earth where there are no more members of the greatest generation to walk us through this history. These are precious souls still walking amongst us.
2: It's amazing when you think about the fact that you can, you can talk to people who actually saved the world. Um, I mean, I, I, I can't remember. I mean, I can't talk to George Washington. I can't talk to Benjamin Franklin. I can't talk to a lot of those people, but I can actually talk to people who were involved in World War II. And and actually played a role in saving the world, which I think is extraordinary. But is it is also a very short window that we have to talk to these people. And um, I think you know it's it's just amazing that we have that opportunity.
3: Let's just start there because you think of the Greatest Generation, and in particular those who fought in World War II. There are some seam lines that pull them together, and that describe most of them. And you're you've spent more time with them than anyone. How would you describe? These guys. I mean, what is it about them? What what are some of the adjectives that jump out at you?
2: Humble. You know, they could be going around to your local mall, or they could be going around to your local place and and saying, you know, hey, look at me, I saved the world. Um, I want the likes on my Instagram page. I want the likes on my Facebook page. Um, But they don't do that. Um, it, It it just blows my mind that there's such a generation that is so humble about the fact that they really dictated where we are today.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And and um, so, you know, when I when I look at that generation, I, I think, you know, if there's any generation that really deserves the fact to to want that attention, it's that generation, but they don't want it at all. That's
3: the thing, is that I mean, they are literally the opposite of selfie culture that we find. Exactly. It- everywhere around us today. And there's a quiet dignity about these guys. I've interviewed a fair amount of them. I'm happy to say over my years as a journalist, there's a quiet dignity. There's a deep patriotism, deep, deep love of America, hard earned and hard fought. Um, And there's just some sort of a bond between them and between them and the country.
2: They survived the Great Depression. They fought World War II like it was a job. And then they came home and they went on with their lives and their lives were centered around their job and their family. And um, that was it. I mean, they, they didn't want the accolades. They felt the accolades belong with those who were buried in American cemeteries in Manila and Normandy and Holland and Belgium and, and other places. There was almost this um, survivor's guilt that they had uh, so when they came home, they took the lessons of World War II and they applied them to their own daily lives. And some of them dealt with them better than others. I mean, some of them came home and they were fine. Some of them came home and they had a problem with alcoholism, or some of them came home and they had a problem with with, with committing suicide, or they had a problem with with their with their families in some way where they would wake up their mom or their wife or their children in the middle of the night and be screaming about a Japanese bonsai attack and they and the families at home couldn't understand. But they came home and they rebuilt America to what it is today. And when I when I think about that generation, anytime I go to a mall or anytime I log on to Amazon or anytime I want to travel to Ohio or Montana um, or another state, I don't need papers. I don't need someone to check in with me. I don't need someone to authorize my, um, my, you know, daily activities. And that's all because of that generation. But it's just so funny that they're kind of like the anti-Kardashian generation that they just went on with their lives and they saved the world and they just didn't want any credit for it. And they felt all the credit belonged with those who, who never had any opportunity to, to live a full life or to have kids or grandkids or to be um, someone who solved cancer or solved the dilemma of autism or dementia or all, um, you know, Alzheimer's or something. So it, it, to me, they live their lives in honor of those who never came home and have the opportunity to do, do great things. And um, it's, that's, uh, it's awe-inspiring.
3: You're so right. I mean, that the juxtaposition is stark when you think about someone like Kardashian, who is famous for being famous for doing absolutely exactly. nothing. All yeah. she wants is for us to celebrate her the way she looks, yeah. her money, uh, her vanity. And these guys were were famous for doing something extraordinary, but wanted no fame, Is um, eschewed the spotlight, and would never have wanted a celebration of anything around them they they would have deflected the credit onto the country and to others
2: exactly and i think that's kind of what's lacking in america is to understand the sacrifice you know that was made to preserve everything that that we are today our our ability to um, believe in a in a god and to believe in a religion and to believe in 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 whatever we want to accomplish and I, and i think that generation humbly did that and they, they left us a blueprint in which to follow. And I think we've gotten away from that blueprint in a lot of ways. And and so when I look back at that generation, I always say, you know, I always tell you the younger generation that, you know, these men have left us a blueprint on how to be better Americans um, and how to be better people. And, and, and we've kind of gotten away from that. And I think that's unfortunate in, in a lot of ways.
3: Yeah. And now, and now we need to follow it. Now we we just need to know it and follow it. All right, yeah. so let's talk about the war and uh, go through the arc of it so people have a, have a, be- a better understanding of it. Um, I think to understand how we got into World War II, you need a basic understanding of how World War I ended. Yeah. Um, you know, most of us on tourist trips, if we've ever had the privilege to go through Europe, uh, through France, if you're lucky, you to get get to go through the Palace of Versailles, and we know that word Versailles and what happened there was directly related to the Second World War in a way many people may not understand. So let's start there. Yeah,
2: I mean Versailles, the Treaty of Versailles ended World War I and and a lot of people, especially over the last I say 30 years or so, have decided uh, historians have decided that World War I was really a continuation of World War II. And it was. And I, and I think World War I directly led to World War II. And, and a lot of that dealt back with the Treaty of Versailles and how Hitler utilized the Treaty of Versailles to um, really emphasize
3: how the German people were mistreated and blamed for World War One. And there are some lessons there. I mean, my understanding of the Treaty of Versailles is it essentially humiliated Hitler, humiliated Germany. Right. And um, it basically dismantled their their military. It imposed harsh penalties against them. It put all the blame on them and left them unable to really function in many key ways. And they became predictably resentful uh, over those terms and up, up rose Adolf Hitler. It was no accident. Those things were, were connected. And um, he decided promptly to play the victim and play Germany as the victim and surely thereafter decided that the villain would be Jewish people.
2: Yeah. I mean, he was the right guy at the right time in history, like Mussolini was in Italy. He was a flamboyant leader. Who basically blamed all of their problems, Italy's problems, and then on Hitler's side, Germany's problems on World War One. When he blamed him, he blamed it on the on the on the Jewish people. He blamed them on on the communists, and he was elected on the fact that he was that person who could um, take the results of World War One, which was the economic depression that Germany was in, the fact that Germany's military had been decimated and and deactivated, and that. He would restore that aura to, to to Germany. And we've talked to German soldiers who said um, basically that Hitler was that person who said, you know, we were wronged in World War I and this is what we need to do now. And then again, by the time he was in power um, and his directives were known, that it was too late to to have former resistance or to to object to what he was
3: doing, even before World War II. I mean, that's that's the thing that a lot of people sort of miss. It, in the 1930s, he built Dachau, uh, one of the you know the first concentration camp. It, it was Kristallnacht was in 1938, I think. Hitler was doing this before the war was actually launched, targeting Jewish people. But obviously, then his eyes became more territorial. Uh, And he started grabbing territory. And that's when the war actually broke out in earnest.
2: Yeah, he started looking at Czechoslovakia. He started looking at the expansion of Germany, that Germany needed more room. And because of World War One, that Germany was was due. This this more room. And he looked at Czechoslovakia and and the Brits and the French gave him Czechoslovakia. And then he started to look at Russia and he started to look at the Soviet Union. And that of course led to the start of World War II and 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 um, it, it's just one of those situations where, where you look at it that Hitler um, really did a great job of appealing to the, the common man in Germany in World War II that the government has forgotten about you and that we need to get back to you know, being able to honor you and to, to help you. But, but then again, he had no plan that would ever succeed in doing that.
3: Yeah. And we now know, of course, he was not abiding by the uh, rules in the Treaty of Versailles saying no more militarization um, he, to the contrary. So just for the timeline, World War One ended November 11th, 1918. Fifteen years later, January 30th, thirty-three, Hitler was appointed the German leader. And September 1st, 1939 is when World War Two is considered to have begun. Germany invaded Poland. Um, a couple of weeks later, the Soviet Union invaded Poland. In the beginning of the war, the Soviets were friendly with Germany. I mean, it was, people forget that that's how it began. I mean, one of Hitler's greatest mistakes, I think, was going after the Soviet Union, just getting so power hungry and land hungry. He thought he could take the Soviets as well, which would be a critical moment for the world, right? Because he couldn't. And the Soviets decided to fight with the Allied powers. And uh, soon thereafter, it, the war ended. But in any event, in the beginning, he took Poland. Uh, he invaded Poland. The Soviet Union invaded Poland. And there was fighting going on for quite some time. In 1940, Norway was invaded by Germany. Uh, same year, Winston Churchill becomes prime minister and um, the the war is underway. Now, the United States at this point is isolationist. We, we've been through a world war. We don't want another world war. The American people are not n- not in the mood at all. But we are helping our friends, are we not?
2: Yes, we are. We're we're helping them through what's called Lend-Lease, which is giving arms to England and giving arms and supplies to the Soviet Union. I mean, there's a point on December 6, 1941, the day before Pearl Harbor, where there's about 88% of the United States that has no interest in helping what's going on in Europe. There's just no interest in getting involved in another world war. And that all changes on December 7th, 1941. So Mm -hmm. 88% of the United States is against getting involved in the war in Europe, despite the fact that England is alone. France has already conceded. Uh, The Netherlands have already conceded. Belgium, everybody's already conceded. But the United States having been through World War I, or at least the last year of World War One, wants no part of the war in Europe until the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, which I find interesting is that it's such a high percentage, 88%, 87%, 88% that wants no part of that war in Europe until we're attacked. And I think that's the way the United States is in general, is that we're not a warring nation. But when we are attacked, like a December seventh or a september eleventh two thousand one that we respond um so history doesn't repeat itself but it but it certainly rhymes, and that's what was the case in nineteen
3: forty one You have a great documentary among many, uh, this one called remembering Pearl Harbor and it I recommend it to everybody. it sets the stage with the actual uh, greatest generation with the, with the actual veterans uh, but it sets the stage in Pearl Harbor quite nicely about how how it was going that day, what, how it was a rather peaceful day. No one anticipated this. To the contrary, there had been a bulletin not long before suggesting this would never happen. It was just too long, a, a reach, a stretch for the Japanese. They didn't right. really need to worry about getting attacked at Pearl Harbor. Um, I mean, a war was underway, so we were watching it, but um, we didn't think it could happen. So here's, this is from Remembering Pearl Harbor on um, the day before Tom Selleck narrating SOT 3
5: Some sailors and soldiers that Sunday morning were already at church services by the beach. Others were up early playing a little toss and catch on the docks before reporting for duty if they had to work on December 7th.
6: Chow bell sounded for breakfast.
5: All was peaceful and serene on Oahu, from
1: Pearl Harbor to the nearby airfields.
3: And then what happened very early that morning? The Japanese attacked. I mean,
2: it was a situation where we expected the attack to come in Guam or the Philippines or at Wake Island. And we had um a warning that war was inevitable, but we we did not know where it would come.
3: And Pearl Harbor was not high on that list. Can we just take a step back and talk about the yeah. Japanese? Because we set it up by talking about Germany and a little bit about the Soviet Union. What what the Japanese? What are they doing there? How yeah,
7: what are you what are go
3: back? There? Yeah, go back and talk about their participation, their interest and their start in this war.
2: Japanese were, were uh, Japan is a country of, of zero natural resources, and they needed natural resources. And so they had already invaded China. They had already invaded Korea. They had already invaded French Indochina, which is now Vietnam today, because they wanted to expand, but they needed natural resources. So the United States decided at that point that they would start to cut off Um, supplies to Japan, whether that be oil or steel. So Japan always felt as though they were backed into a corner and their expansion was dependent on these resources, these natural resources. So if the United States was not going to supply these natural resources, that they would have to disable the American Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor. And that's exactly what they tried to do on December 7th, 1941, but they did not um, understand that A- that the uh, American aircraft carriers were not there, and B they never launched the third wave, which attacked the oil refineries at Pearl Harbor. So Japan was trying to expand their empire in the Pacific, while Hitler was trying to expand his empire in, in Europe. And they they thought and, that and they it could- wasn't
3: totally unrelated. They they'd been talking. There was an agreement. Like th- there this wasn't you know just two separate wars happening at once.
2: No. I mean, they had formed an alliance called the Axis Powers between Italy, Japan, and Germany. Um, So they were talking about what what the situation was in the Pacific. So what they needed to do was eliminate the American Pacific fleet for six months or a year, but they did not figure on the resolve of the United States. The United States wants a fair fight. I mean, that's always how Americans are. They want a fair fight. They don't want to be attacked without notice or be attacked by surprise. And that's the slogan of Remember Pearl Harbor. And that was the rallying cry of World War II. It was Remember Pearl Harbor. We were attacked without notice by the Japanese, and the Japanese had their intentions. Um, But that became the rallying cry. And that's why so many millions of Americans signed up for the fight in World War II, because it was a sucker blow. And, um, Mm. and Americans don't like sucker blows.
3: Maybe this is hindsight being 2020, but it seems so foolish to now in retrospect, like why would they want to drag us into the war of all powers? It's not like we were not known for our military might, you know, we had just won world war one, Like why, why drag the United States into (laughs) this conflict that we'd been rejecting thus far?
2: It's so funny because, um, you know Admiral Yamamoto, who was the was the key architect architect of the Battle of Pearl Harbor, the the attack at Pearl Harbor, and also the Battle of Midway, told the Japanese military, he said, you know, you um, only have a certain amount of time here to. To, to put the United States at bay. Yamamoto had studied at Harvard. He had been a naval attaché in Washington. He had ventured out into the American heartland and seen the industrial power of the United States. So he basically was against a strike against the United States, but the, but the Japanese military, the Japanese army was in control of what the decisions would be in World War II. So, you know, Yamamoto at certain points uh, voiced his concern and said, this is not going to work. We're going to awaken a sleeping giant. And he meant by a sleeping giant, he meant American industry. He meant by the, the, the ability to convert the, um, the the Ford plants in Detroit from cars to tanks and airplanes and everything else. He said, we cannot win a war with the United States. But nobody listened to him, especially the army. And there were attempts on his life. And um, so, you know, Japan did not listen to the voice of reason. The army was, was, was hellbent on attacking the United States because they felt they were inferior in many ways, inferior as soldiers, inferior as Navy, inferior in, 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 in militaristic ways. But Yamamoto was the voice of reason, and they did not like that. And they still attacked Pearl Harbor, and they still had Yamamoto plan the attack on Pearl Harbor and plan the attack on Midway. But he was a voice who just said, we cannot win a war. We can only buy time. And how much time we can buy is 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 negotiable. And um, I think they were looking at some point to say, OK, we're going to buy time. We're going to be able to occupy Guam and the Philippines, and those will be our islands. And then we'll settle for peace. But Yamamoto was really the only one who understood the industrial might and the capability of the United States.
3: The element of surprise is still hard to understand, given radar and satellite and all the gifts that we have today. But um, I I didn't realize this, actually, prior to preparing for this interview, that there was an alert operator of an Army radar station at seven o'clock that morning. We got hit at around eight a.m., but at seven o'clock that morning who spotted the approaching first wave of the japanese attack force exactly. and sounded the alarm and what what happened well the problem
2: was is that radar was so new at that time what the joe lockhart and his colleague decided at the opana radar site on hawaii was you know they reported this to 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 the authorities in Hawaii, and they thought, well, well, this is a this is a, a a a crew of B-17 planes coming in from California. Radar was not was not being utilized that effectively by the United States at that time, so they thought it was a B-17 um, squadron coming in from from the west coast of the United States. And, don't, and 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 Tyler, the man at uh, at Hawaii, said, "Don't worry about it." Those are famous last words. Don't worry about it. It's just a it's a group of B-17s coming in from California. And they said, okay, we're gonna go for lunch now, then. And um, and that's what happened. And so it's it's almost like 9-11 in terms of things are building up and things are are presenting themselves, and we're we're saying it's something else. It's not what what is actually happening. Radar was so new at the time, Megan, that. We didn't trust it enough to 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 say we assumed Kermit Tyler was a guy and I hate to single him out, but he was the guy in the famous movie Tora, 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 who said, don't worry about it. It's a it's it's a squadron of B-17s coming in from California.
3: Oh, my goodness. And It wasn't. Uh, it was Japanese.
2: It was Japanese planes coming in to sink, the Arizona and Oklahoma and everybody else.
3: Yeah, the Arizona took the worst of the damage, um, and the Oklahoma, and all 21 ships of the U.S. Pacific Fleet were sunk or damaged. Um, Aircraft losses, 188 destroyed, 159 damaged. The majority hit before they had a chance to even take off. And the Japanese success was, it was overwhelming. I mean, it was, it was incredible. it's, not to compliment, but it was it was a great success for them. And our guys were completely caught by surprise, as documented again in remembering um, Pearl Harbor. This is a clip from it in which several of the survivors on the USS Arizona describe the explosion that destroyed their ship. It's SOT 6.
7: At nine minutes after eight, one of the bombers came over the lucky bomb.
6: And then the big bomb hit the number two turret.
7: Dropped it from maybe eight, 10,000 feet.
6: And went right into a million rounds of ammunition and fuel oil and aviation gasoline.
7: It went in there and exploded. That's what exploded.
6: It blew the 110 foot of the ship clear off.
7: And everything from the main mess forward is on fire. The battleship came out of the water about 30 feet,
6: blew in the water. Well, the fireball went off, and it went about 500 or 600 feet in the air and just engulfed us up there in the sky control platform. Hmm.
3: couple of things there um, to, to pick up on. It wasn't just Pearl Harbor. This This hell was unleashed in more places than Pearl Harbor. And you mentioned it before it was an overwhelming success but it wasn't a complete success because we did not have our aircraft carriers in pearl harbor that day so can you first explain that the vast amount of areas and, and locations attacked and then talk about why our aircraft carriers were not there
2: yeah i mean our aircraft carriers were delivering planes to to midway first of all the enterprise was delivering planes to midway the saratoga was undergoing repairs so the, the japanese decided that you know this this based on local intelligence um given by spies in hawaii uh, that you know this this the pacific fleet was there for the taking and they were the destroyers were there and the battleships were there, but the aircraft carriers were either a delivering planes to Midway or out on other missions, or being um, repaired in um, Bremerton, Washington, or or other places. And the Japanese also made a huge mistake in the fact that they did not attack the oil refineries in Pearl Harbor. That would have been the third wave of the Japanese attack. So they they missed their opportunity to really um, inflict a lot of damage on the United States at Pearl Harbor. And I think the Japanese also, you know, Admiral Yamamoto, I go back to him because we've been to Nagaoka, which is his hometown. And we've been to places where we've interviewed his, his grandson. He was the only one who really had a clear understanding of the industrial might of the United States. And, and, and that you had to knock it all off at once if you wanted to, to, to sever the head of the snake. And they, they accomplished two of the three goals. And, and that third part of the goal, which is the aircraft carriers and not attacking the oil refineries at Pearl Harbor, um, was a major, major mistake uh, on the part of the Japanese. And, and Yamamoto was a realist. And he was also one of those people who said, you know, we have about six months to run rampant in the Pacific before the United States industrial might catches up with us. And um, so but the army didn't want to hear that Tojo and the others didn't want to hear that. And but he was he was a realist. And to hear guys like Don Stratton, who passed away a couple of years ago, and Lou Contor, who's one of only two survivors still alive from the USS Arizona in that piece you just ran to to hear them describe what it was like to me. um, It's just incredible Mm -hmm. because they were a witness to history. The worst thing the Japanese could have done was launch a sneak attack. They could have notified us beforehand that we were going to attack. But Americans don't. Was that done?
3: Was that done? I mean, you know, was that done? Was that was that is that how it used to be done? Like an attack is coming.
2: Yeah, I mean it's the Japanese because there are so many issues with the Japanese with transmissions and everything else. On December seventh, nineteen forty-one, their goal was to announce to us that they were going to attack Pearl Harbor, but because of delays in Washington and 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 transcribing documents and west and and telegrams and everything else, um, it became a surprise attack. And, and for see- the record,
3: the the number of military personnel personnel killed in, uh, on Pearl, at Pearl Harbor was. 2335. That actually includes uh, 68 civilians, I think. Um, So yeah, I I guess when the total is 2403 people dead 100. I mean, 1177 from the USS Arizona, which is just stunning. If you go if you go out there now, you can see the uh, memorial to the USS Arizona, the other ships, almost all of them were repaired and sent back out into service. The only other two that weren't besides the Arizona were just too old and too out of, you know, commission to really care about. Yeah. Um, but the Arizona is the one that took the, the brunt of it. And I will tell you, a couple of years ago, I interviewed um, Jim Downing, who I saw in your yes. piece, yes.
7: who was West such Virginia. a
3: special man, such a, such a special man. So I flew out and I met him in California with his family. He wasn't on the actual ship when it got hit, but then he ran there mm-hmm. and held the bodies of many men who were dying and um, said prayers to them and continued to do so. Uh, We have a soundbite, actually, from Jim on on the role of God for him during the attack. I'll play it now. It's Sat 12. What role did God play for you that fateful day?
6: I thought I was going to be blown up. And um, my conversation with God is, I'll be with you in a minute. But a minute went by for about 30 minutes, and I wasn't taken. But I experienced the greatest peace I've ever had in my life, knowing that God's in charge.
3: He was 104 during that interview. And the loveliest thing happened to him. We talked about God, my connection to him, his connection. And Jim wrote me the most thoughtful letter after that interview. Thanking me. Of course, I, I, it was I who needed to thank him. He wrote me this long letter thanking me and encouraging me to do a couple of things to renew my relationship with my faith and so on. I wrote back to him, and a pen pal relationship developed. He would yeah. die not long thereafter in t- 2018, but what a special, special dear man.
2: Jim was uh, in the mail office, in the post office on the USS West, uh, West Virginia so he read a lot of the letters that were were sent home um and the west virginia was attacked on december 7th 1941 and and to me so he got to know personally the stories of the men on that on that battleship and there's been a lot written about jim and jim to me represents the best of america and um you know i think you were very fortunate to know somebody like him and I I think if we could somehow get back to um, the mindset of men like like Jim, there you know, would be such a better country for for that. Mm-hmm. And he was a hero, but he didn't think himself of a hero uh, as himself as a hero. And he read the letters home, and he was kind of connected to everybody on the USS West Virginia, and. Um, the Pearl Harbor was was such a was such a turning point in the history of this world that he was he was on that battleship and was reading the personal letters home of the people on that battleship. And to me, he's he's one of those people I always admired and, and thought, wow, you know, here's a guy who knew the inner thinking of of the people on the battleship and and how they were scared and how they were looking forward to their own futures of being doctors and lawyers and maybe curing cancer or Alzheimer's or dementia. I mean, they had so many, they had so much potential. The men on West Virginia and Arizona and Oklahoma and Maryland and Nevada and everybody else. I think what could they have done post-war that it would have
3: changed the world? And Jim is
2: one of those guys.
3: That's the thing is there There were almost 3000 Jim Downings killed that day. You know, they were all men like that. They were built differently back then. It's like the quality of person that we lost in each one of those guys is is just it's hard to match. It makes you miss them all the more and it makes you all the angrier, though, by the way, Jim was not angry. Of course, he was full of grace. I did Mm -hmm. ask him a question. Uh, Here's a follow up uh, between the two of us. Uh, This is 13. You seem like you're a happy person,
6: are you? I am very happy. I'm a realist. I can't do anything about uh, what happened yesterday. I can't do much about what happens tomorrow. Living today is so much fun, so I live it up every day. (laughs) Love that. We
3: all need a little bit more Jim Downing in our lives.
2: He's, he's one of those guys, Megan, who understands that he represents the guys who are buried in cemeteries in Hawaii at the Punchbowl or Normandy or Manila or Holland or Belgium or other places that, you know, he survived and was able to carry on with his life, but that he also carries the burden of being a survivor. And that's a tough burden for these guys you know, why did I survive when the guy on the left of me died and the guy on the right of me died? I mean, what, what is my mission in life? My mission in life is, is, is to carry on to represent the qualities that my buddies who died you know, had. And I think a lot of the times, you know, I I joke with people, I said, you know, when you're in Normandy, and you're jumping into a foxhole, you're not asking if that guy's a Republican or a Democrat, you're just jumping in that foxhole, knowing that that guy's an American, and that that guy is going to help you survive, and you're going to help him survive. So why can't we get back to that time? where we're looking at it as America first. America is, you know, not a party. It's it's an idea. It's It's an evolution of what the Founding Fathers discussed.
1: The University of Austin is a new university dedicated to the fearless pursuit of truth. At UATX, a culture of free, open inquiry and civil discourse helps us break through barriers instead of walking on eggshells. Students will feel at home in our downtown Austin campus. With guidance from world-class professors, they'll grapple with history's most important ideas. They'll learn through dialogue without fear of censorship while forming friendships that last a lifetime. They'll have unparalleled access to mentors in business, science, politics, and the arts, and develop careers alongside Austin's leading entrepreneurs, builders, and founders. What's more, all students in the founding class will receive full tuition scholarships for all four years. Admissions are rolling for fall 2024. Apply to the University of Austin now at uaustin.org.
3: The day after Pearl Harbor on um, December 8th, 1941, the president of the United States, FDR, addressed the nation in a speech that would become known for a century plus. Here's a bit of that.
6: December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan.
3: It's I mean, that's some 80 years ago. And people still know that phrase, a day yeah. that will live in infamy. Yeah. I can only imagine what that did to the United States at the time. You know, his address rousing mm. this same president who'd been with the country. And we're not going to get into this. The 88 percent saying we're not going to get into this. And boy as they say what a difference a day makes
2: we rallied behind the president as we rallied behind w on you know september 11 2001 and it just seems as though what i learned the most from world war 2 is that we're like an old irish family where where there're like seven brothers and all we do is beat up on each other but if god forbid someone from outside the family beats up on one of the brothers we all to come together and and we respond, and 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 that means like it's like why are we so divided now when we could all just find a a, a medium like Eisenhower talked about as a president and come together and figure out what's best for America, not what be, not what's best for the neighbor Republic, Republican Party, or it's best for the uh, Democratic Party or the independent party? What, what is best for America? Why does it take us being attacked to come together as a nation? In Roosevelt's speech, I mean, they detested Roosevelt. The Republicans detested Roosevelt. A lot of the country detested Roosevelt um, because of the New Deal and because of everything else he was, he was pushing. And a lot of the country despised W. Bush because of what he was pushing. But all of a sudden, because, of, because America was attacked, all of a sudden we came together and said, here is our common goal. Our common goal is to do what's best for America.
3: And I, I, always, find lucky. That fascin- I always find that I,
2: fascinating.
3: You know, I have to say, though, I feel lucky to remember those times. I feel lucky yeah. to be one of the citizens who felt that and remembers that America first feeling like this is we love our country and we love each other. And you mess yep. with the family. You know, you're exactly. going to pay. You're going to pay. <laughs> well, back to World War II, pay. They did. Uh, we and Great Britain declared war on Japan. Um, Hitler decided to join in and declared war on us. And it was off to the races. He believed inaccurately that we would be too distracted with the Japanese to fight him. And he again, uh, unlike uh, the Japanese leader who you mentioned, Hitler uh, underestimated us in a way that would be profound. He didn't think that we had the resolve. He didn't think we had the military. And he didn't think that despite our booming economy, we had the resources Mm -hmm. to fight on two fronts. And he was wrong. He was
2: wrong. I mean, most of these people, the Japanese and the Germans, looked at the Americans as soft, that they didn't want war. They didn't want to fight in a war and that they would not um, use all of their resources and initiative and everything else to fight in a war. And they were wrong. The Japanese were wrong. The Germans were wrong. and And they paid the price for that. And so I always look at it as interesting is is that they always underestimated the United States and always and, and people always ad- underestimate the United States. But Hitler's two main errors in World War Two were do, were um, declaring war on the Soviet Union and declaring war on the
3: United States.
4: Mm.
3: The British were major players, of course, yeah. as well. And, uh, we're in a precarious position for quite some time during the war, not knowing whether they were going to face the same fate as France. Winston Churchill was the prime minister and in probably the best known speech ever. I mean, it's gotta be at least one of them, um, rallied his country to the cause, but also with a note of caution about what the, the enemy that they faced. Here's Winston Churchill addressing the House of Commons, June 4th, 1940.
7: We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire, beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, Steps forth to the rescue and the liberation
3: of the old mm. that was yeah. uh, June 4th 1940 to the House of Commons the thing about Winston Churchill was I just recently read a biography on him if there was one thing he was great at it was wordsmithing and yeah. if if you could take that to the next level with Winston Churchill it was wordsmithing when it came to war which was his particular area of expertise it was a skill he'd worked on his entire life he yeah. was built for that moment. And he was ready for it when it came. That was before they attacked us at Pearl Harbor. Great Britain was in it. They were dealing with Hitler. They were dealing with everything. And he was the man who got Great Britain through it, notwithstanding the fact that they would throw him out of office as soon as they won the war. Um, There's that classic scene from um, the King's Speech where um, they're following the British story during World War II. And the King is watching Adolf Hitler. Speak, And the little girl, who is the future Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth, uh, as a yeah. little girl, looks at her father and says, what is he saying? What is he saying, Dad?
7: Masses of uniformed men, stupefying
6: to the eye and incredible to the imagination, have stood in spellbound audience of the Führer. for <laughs> for
5: I don't know, but
7: he seems to be saying it rather well.
3: This is a guy with a speech impediment who's observing how effective a communicator Hitler was. (laughs) There's a reason there's a reason so many Germans followed this lunatic down the incredible murderous hole that they did.
2: Yeah and 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 we've interviewed German soldiers and those German soldiers have told us is that Hitler delivered us from the Treaty of Versailles our economy was devastated our military did not exist we had no morale by the time Hitler delivered his oratory his ability to 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 motivate us um he had controlled the media he had controlled everything he needed to control in order to be in charge of that country. So um, it's it's almost like an apology when we've interviewed German German veterans, and they're not SS, they're not fanatical, they're not the guys on the on the cusp of you know the concentration camps and everything else. These are just 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 general German soldiers. They said he motivated us enough. To believe in him, his oratory motivated us enough to believe in him. And he also controlled the media at that time. And so the media message was his message. And, and by the time they discovered, or they found out about the concentration camps, and they found out about the Jews, and they found out about the, the, um, the obsession with controlling more territory, whether it be Czechoslovakia or the Soviet Union, it was too late It was too late for them to do anything. There would always be a resistance within the community, but the resistance would never be strong enough to overthrow what had already been done.
0: Hollywood is under siege, covertly compromised by a global adversary. The same Hollywood that sold the American dream to the world is now making nightmares a reality. Watch the first 10 minutes for free on hollywoodtakeover.com/mk. That's hollywoodtakeover.com/mk.
3: Let's talk about it because uh the numbers are just stunning. You know, June 6, 1944, it was a Tuesday. More than 156,000 American, British and Canadian troops Yes. stormed 50 miles of Normandy's fiercely defended beaches in yep. northern France and if you look back at how the battle was fought with you know the uh the 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 men running out of the ships onto uh beaches that were riddled with mines um yes. taking fire from above you can't help it as a layperson but to feel like they were they were sacrificed there was how on earth could we not lose some of our forces undergoing that kind of an assault, which we knew was going to happen. You know, we knew it was going to happen and we'd laid traps. so They would think that we weren't going to storm Normandy and so on. And they fell for our traps, but they were also prepared at Normandy, as I understand it. And I just wonder as a as a historian, when you look at that, did we know the extent of the casualties we were likely to take storming those beaches?
2: We always believed as a country we were going to ex- we were going to expect more casualties than we actually um, that we actually attained on that day. Um, the paratroopers, the addition of the paratroopers, the 82nd Airborne and the 101st Airborne um, was was something that was important to Eisenhower, not so much as 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 the British. Um, But we we sustained so much less casualties than we expected that day. Eisenhower had written a note taking total blame for the failure of D-Day. Can you imagine that one person writing a note saying, I have accepted the the failure of the landings on the coast of of Normandy? And he did that. He wrote two notes. and, And one of them was because he did not know which way the battle would go. And Normandy was a defining moment in the history of World War II. And all of the plans that were laid out, and, and we, we talk about this a lot, and it's, and it's interesting because we talk about this with corporations as well, um, big corporation, that, that you know you, every plan looks great on paper until that first shot is fired and that is a quote from from uh, general patton every plan looks good until the first firing you know, first Grand M1 Grand is fired, and then all plans go to hell. And then it's the initiative of the Americans at that point. And I think it was the initiative of the Americans at that point compared to the Germans, that was the true ultimate success of D-Day in terms of knowing the plans of the divisions around you, the companies around you, knowing the plans of everybody Around you, so if something went wrong, you had the training to pick up the, the rifle and move forward. Whereas the Germans were reliant on 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 Hitler, and von Rudstadt, and and reliant on Rommel's orders and things like that. It was initiative that won D-Day for the Americans, as opposed to what the Germans were were defending. How
3: much, how much prep did we put? into that effort before we actually launched the attack.
2: Tons, tons of prep, tons of maps. Um, Everything, again, looked great on paper. And, you know, this is where we're going to land. This is where the 1st Infantry is going to land. This is where the 29th Infantry is going to land. This is where the 82nd Airborne is going to land. This is where the 101st is going to land. This is where the British are going to land. This is where the Canadians are going to land. This is where the the French are going to land. Everything went to hell in a handbasket as soon as as D-Day began. But but the thing is, is that the Americans and the allies were all so connected with the plans of D-Day that they knew that if something failed in this area, that we'd be able to
3: accommodate it in this area. The Germans also had the disadvantage of Hitler having decided he would be commander in chief, and he was a terrible military commander. By according he was taking to a, a nap. First,
2: he was taking he was taking a nap. He was sleeping, and they were waiting for him to wake up before they waited for him to make the decision whether to move the tanks forward towards the beaches of Normandy and everything else. Whereas the Americans are saying, "Okay, this isn't working," but but the captains and the lieutenants and the and the corporals and 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 the colonels and the privates are taking the initiative. And that's what's so great about America is that, is that we recognize that if something's not working, we take the initiative to make sure mm-hmm. it works. We lead.
3: We lead. We lead that. ourselves. Yes. The, uh, the toughest fighting was said to be on Omaha Beach. First yes. waves of American fighters were cut down in droves by the German machine gun fire as they scrambled across the mine-riddled beach. But U.S. forces persisted. All day pushing forward to a fortified seawall, up steep bluffs to take out the Nazi, the Nazi artillery uh, by nightfall. And at, they say all told around 2,400 American troops were killed, wounded or unaccounted for at Omaha Beach. The Canadians were over at Juneau Beach having an equally if not even tougher time. Um, the, your, you have a documentary on D-Day as well. And it has an extraordinary segment of survivors talking about that moment. And this this moment of storming the beach at Normandy. I mean, it's, it's a phrase now that people use to try to describe courage in a few words or less. But you think about having to be one of those guys and actually do it. Understanding yeah. it's not, it wasn't a mystery to them, uh, the mines and the machine gun fire that was about to come their way. And oh. here is a couple minutes. Uh, from Tim's documentary on what that was like.
6: As I was going into the beach, I could hear the bullets hitting on the side of the ship, uh, on the side of my boat. And then that's when I realized, I said, well, this isn't going to be a piece of cake. This is for real. I looked into the well of the boat, and there was 35 soldiers in there, and I don't think there was an atheist in there because every one of us, was making a sign of the cross as we were going in. And I happened to look. <laughs> I looked to the right, and I seen a boat. And then that's when I realized what we were going into.
4: Our job was to roll uh, up these obstacles. They had what they call hedgehogs, and then they had these telephone poles with a ramp, and on top of the telephone pole was a mine. That was for when the tide came in, the boats would just slide up there, and the mine would explode. And our job was to uh, blow up 50 yard gaps so the infantry could land. carried a rifle and you know, a web belt with canteen and ammunition and a rifle. And I forgot how many pounds of uh, explosives I had on my back. I believe they called it touch And as I got to the ramp of the small boat that was in to land, there was, I j- just as I jumped into the water, there was this ex- explosion. And while I was on the water, maybe a couple of seconds, someone pulled me out and I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find any of the crew that I was attached to. I found out later that they were all killed. <laughs>
3: i was only one left. Oh wow. American hero, and God bless you, Tim, for, for interviewing these guys and getting their stories on camera. That was Day of Days uh, by Tim Gray, and you should definitely watch that one too. The they're just humans, you know. They really they seem superhuman, hmm. but they're just men, and they and they were young men asked to do the most extraordinary things, and they did it without complaint. And with valor.
2: Ernie Corvese, who you just heard from, I said, you know, what did you do after the war? He said, I went back to high school. I mean, can you imagine that going through the fact that you're a naval combat demolition unit guy like today? They're called frogmen or Navy SEALs and seeing all of your guys killed. And then he went on to the Philippines. I said, "What'd you do after World War II?" He said, "I went back to high school." And I said, "You know, when I was in high school, Megan, I would think I was still sucking my thumb." <laughs> you know, I, I looked at that guy, and I'm like thinking to myself, "What? Um, what an incredible American you are, to be able to accomplish that, and 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 then go back to high school and finish high school." And Richard Fazio, the guy behind him, who lived the first half hour of Saving Private Ryan. And, I, and Richard's still alive. Ernie passed away this year, unfortunately. Um, but, I, but I look at them and I, and, I, and I talk to young people today who are 17 or 18 years old. And I go, you know, you, this is what you're capable of. I said, whether you know it or not, you're capable of this. You're capable of being the next greatest generation you know and 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 they look at me like i'm a like i'm a alien from lost in space or something like that and i said these guys didn't think they were capable of doing that themselves at 17 or 18 but they did it
3: well think when- of this sad oh. obsession now with identity and you know skin color and gender and you know, patriarchy it's like oh my god you could be devoting your energies to something so much bigger than just you and these these immutable characteristics that we've decided to obsess over right now. Think of what you could accomplish if you would take all of that time and energy and devote it to something greater than yourself. If not a war, uh, innovation. Solve the problem of the closure of those steel mines and the people looking for a new career or identity. Find a way to help america find its its new footing in the yep. age of electronics and the supercomputers and so on like that's what we need all the energies devoted to not navel gazing selfies and hysterical <laughs> focus on things over which we will never have any control
2: yeah people base their self-worth today on how many likes they get and that generation did not they based their life on coming out of the depression And surviving the depression when their parents were went from lawyer to selling apples and they fought World War II as a war and they fought it as a job. And they came home and they raised their kids on the values that they learned during the war and 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 the attributes that they brought home. And there's just there's too much. There's too much that's that's going by the wayside to to make America a great country. There are too many, you know, there's too much divisiveness and and this is what these guys fought about you know they 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 fought about they fought against mussolini they fought against hitler they fought against all these things that were trying to tear america apart and 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 i think of when i walk through the the cemetery in normandy i look at the names from connecticut and montana and california and other places and i said you know this this kid who was 18 or 19 could have could have cured autism or cancer or dementia or alzheimer's or all of these things that we're battling today if he had the chance if he wasn't killed on June sixth or June fifteenth or or something like that, and I think to myself, boy, oh boy, you know what a wasted opportunity that that this young man buried in the cemetery under this white cross or or star of David could have changed the world, but instead, you know, was killed on June 6th, 1944. And, mm-hmm. and I, I just think, what if, what if, what, what would this country be? And, and I look at that. I've been to cemeteries all over the world in Manila, where there are 35,000 missing in action buried, you know, on the wall of the missing there, or the punch bone in, in Hawaii or, or Holland or Belgium. And I said, geez, what is there? What would have been their destiny? And I think we think that today, with soldiers who were killed in Afghanistan or Iraq or, or, or other places, their families feel as though, what would have there been? Have there been their destiny? What would they have grown to do?
3: Those and poor I, families, though, have a different, such a different outcome. You know, yeah, at least we, at least all, we got to declare victory in World War II, and there was zero doubt did, about whether who were the bad guys, who were the good guys, and whether it was worth it. Yeah, we don't
2: know that today. And today these soldiers go through a situation where when they're fighting, they don't know who. I mean, in World War II, the Germans wore helmets where we could identify them. The Japanese wore helmets and uniforms where we could identify them. And today in Iraq and Afghanistan and other countries, we don't know if that 12 year old. Is, is the enemy or not and that adds an entire layer of stress to these men and women who are fighting that I just yeah. can't imagine
3: yeah can't imagine well you you were not the only one uh, floored by <laughs> the sacrifices yeah. made by our troops you had mentioned uh Rommel the yeah. German field C- marshal Erwin Rommel well You've got a soundbite from uh, his son, Manfred Rommel. Yes. Uh, and and his dad had left the front lines to attend his wife's 50th birthday party um, on D-Day. And he, you actually got sound from his son, which is pretty extraordinary. Listen to how he reacted. Sot 21.
4: He was very surprised because he relied on the expert view of the German Kriegsmarine that uh, nobody could land under such weather conditions. It was a very courageous decision of General Eisenhower and a very successful. My father was away from the theater and some others as well. He said, this is very painful that they are landing while I'm not there. The British and Americans were more courageous than the Germans concerning the weather.
3: Put that in context; it's a little tough to understand and for the for the listening audience. Tim, what was he saying there?
2: Well, his father had gone home to Germany because he did not feel as though that the Allies would be landing under such weather conditions as were, um, you know, as were. Uh, the case on June 6, 1944. He believed that the Allies would land in better weather conditions. So Manfred Rommel's father had gone home for his wife's Lucy, his uh, wife Lucy's 50th birthday and bought her shoes in Paris. So Manfred was home as the 13, 14-year-old who witnessed his father getting the call back in Hurlingen, Germany, that the Allied invasion had begun in Normandy. And, and Erwin Rommel's headquarters at La Roche-Guillon, which is outside of Paris, was unoccupied by Rommel on D-Day. Rommel should have been there on D-Day to direct the forces, to direct the German forces. And here he is in Germany because he did not think that the Allies would land under such weather conditions, whereas Eisenhower had said, the conditions are marginal, but will go. And so Manfred was home watching his father's reaction, getting the telephone call back, in in Germany, that the Allies had landed in Normandy, and here he is in Germany. And Manfred, you know, um, articulated that. Manfred Rommel was an outstanding human being. He was the mayor of Stuttgart, Germany for 23 years. He also became very good friends with, this, uh, with the family of General Montgomery after the war. And he was a humanitarian. But he was also witness to a momentous time in history when his father got a phone call in Germany that the Allies were landing on D-Day in France. And 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 Manfred was also there when his father was taken away to uh, be forced to commit suicide um, by Hitler because of the failures of Normandy and because mm-hmm. um, Rommel had been an outspoken critic of of, of uh, Hitler during World War II. So Manfred Rommel, um, who passed away several years ago, gave us this perspective of what it was like to be a 13 or 14-year-old in the German army, but to witness his father's reaction to these right. moments. Extraordinary.
3: And him, him relaying his father saying the Americans and the Canadians, the Brits, they were just more courageous. That's extraordinary. Your jaw must have dropped when you got that soundbite.
2: Well, it did. It was one of those things where as a filmmaker, you say there are certain people you want to interview who had a first row seat to World War Two. And Manfred Rommel was one of those people. And, and after he passed away, um, you know, we were very devastated in his passing, but he was a benevolent and he was a kind uh, Mayor in Stuttgart, Germany, but he was also an observer to some of the most momentous events in World War II. And um, to to have him in some of our films was just one of those things where you just—it's just dumb luck that we got him when he was alive. And and filmmakers are are, are always um, a dumb luck is always part of being a good filmmaker, whether you're Ken Burns or <laughs> well, or anybody else. But but to have his well perspective. Done. Yeah, to have his perspective on that was was incredible, and um, you know he was firmly in the belief that the Allies would not land in bad weather on June sixth, nineteen forty four, and that's exactly what Eisenhower did.
3: Uh, within a year, Hitler would surrender. The Japanese would be another story. Uh, yeah. It would take two atom bombs to yeah. make them finally <laughs> surrender, yeah. and um, that uh, I want to get to the USS Missouri. Yeah. Which was the ship on which the surrender papers were signed. And just a an aside as to John McCain, Senator John McCain's yeah. grandfather, yeah. who was on the ship reluctantly. He had yeah. wanted to get back home. He knew they won. <laughs> he he was ready to get it back home to his family. And and tell us what happened.
2: Well, you know, it was just a situation where we had dropped two bombs on Japan. And um, the Japanese military, the army especially, still did not want to surrender. So we dropped bombs on Hiroshima, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the Japanese army did not uh, want to surrender, even after two crazy. atomic bombs, That's crazy. which is absolutely nuts. But then they, uh, the Emperor Hirohito... Um, decided, uh, you know, enough is enough. So when Hirohito, Hirohito decides enough is enough, the Japanese military, the army, decides they want to assassinate Hirohito. Hirohito. So um, we had planned to do, to invade Japan in November of that year of 1945, and the casualties would have been in the millions, and Japan probably would have been wiped off the face of the earth. So it goes to show you that when the surrender was officially Signed by the Japanese hirohito was the was the emperor, and decided enough was enough. The Japanese military still, after two atomic bombs, wanted to continue the fight. So when we knew at that point, Truman knew at that point that the Japanese were um willing to defend their homeland to the last whether that be children with spears and, and women and men and everybody else with, with, with everything else, he decided we would drop two atomic bombs. And um, those who served in the Pacific totally agreed. And those who had served in Europe totally agreed. We've never come across a World War II veteran who said, that we should not have dropped the atomic bombs on Japan. Now we're looking at this at a 20th century lens. We're not looking at this at a 21st century lens. Atomic bombs today are devastating. We do not want them. We do not want Russia to uh, to drop an atomic bomb on the Ukraine. We, we, we feel as though that would be just, you know, but in 1945, in the lens that we're looking at in the 21st in the 20th century that was the appropriate thing to do to save lives mm. so the surrender in tokyo bay on the uss missouri was attended by you know the navy and marines and the japanese and they finally decided to surrender but at that point the japanese army still did not want to surrender so that tells you the fanaticism of what the americans were going to face or the allies The Russians, everybody else were going to face if they invaded Japan in 1945, November of 1945. So Japan would have been wiped off the face of the earth. We would have suffered another million plus casualties. We'd already printed another million Purple Hearts in anticipation of the fight in Japan. So Truman decided enough is enough. This world war needs to end. And it eventually did end. But only because Emperor Hirohito decided that enough was enough and that the Japanese were, were defeated. Mm. And even then Japanese did not apologize and have never apologized for Pearl Harbor or starting World War II in the Pacific. And that has always been a sticking point for the United States that Japan has never apologized for that. And wow. um, Japan always felt that the war in the Pacific was legitimate legitimate and that it was caused by the oil embargo and the in the embargo of natural resources and that they were forced to to do what they did. So Japan has never officially apologized for Pearl Harbor or starting World War II in the Pacific. And that's always been a little a sticking point with Pacific veterans. I know one veteran who who was at home one day and Megan his his son came home with a, a Honda motorcycle and his son was washing his hands in the kitchen sink and looked outside and his dad who was a um, survivor of Pearl Harbor um, at Schofield Barracks, was pouring gasoline on this Honda motorcycle and about, re- about ready to, to, to light it on fire. And his son came running out and saying, what are you doing? <laughs> and, and he said, I'm, I'm not going to let you drive this, this uh, Japanese motorcycle. And his son said, why not? And his dad had to explain to him why. And um, those feelings still linger with with veterans of the Pacific War. And I tell people today that the Pacific War and the European War were two different wars. They were two specific wars. They were totally they were totally different wars. The savagery of the Pacific War was no comparison to what was going on in in Europe. And mm. and the Geneva Convention was not observed by the Japanese, and they, they treated prisoners as cowards. And the fight in the Pacific, beginning with Guadalcanal and moving on to the other islands, was a totally different war. And the veterans in Europe had such a respect for the veterans who fought in the Pacific because there were no rules in the Pacific War. It was a free-for-all. It was just a total, absolutely bloody free-for-all compared to what
3: was going on in Europe. Pure Talk is once again investing in their customers without charging an extra penny because PureTalk Talk is now providing international roaming to over 50 countries. That's right. As you plan your summer travel, make sure your wireless provider has you covered at home and abroad. Pure Talk already puts you on America's most dependable 5G network, but now they're giving you coverage in over 50 countries as well. Unlimited talk, text, and plenty of 5G data for just 20 bucks a month. That's less than the half of what Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile will charge you. If you bring your phone, PureTalk's eSIM technology will make switching so simple. Or you can get great savings on the latest iPhones and Androids. Consider making the switch to PureTalk. Just go to puretalk.com kelly to start saving today. And when you do, you will save an additional 50% off your first month. Again, visit puretalk.com kelly to start saving on wireless at home and abroad.
0: Hollywood Takeover is a documentary brought to you by the Epoch Times, revealing how the CCP has infiltrated major movie studios. Join Chris Fenton, a former Hollywood executive, and Tiffany Meyer, an investigative news reporter, through their journey in exposing how the film industry gradually lost its integrity on its path to profits. Don't miss the most important documentary ever made about Hollywood. For a limited time, watch the first 10 minutes for free on HollywoodTakeover.com MK. That's HollywoodTakeover.com MK.
3: We've only touched briefly on the Holocaust and what happened there. Yeah. Hitler's atrocities were discovered in full. Um, he took his own life on April 30th, 1945, uh, about a week before his country surrendered. As I pointed out, Japan would come later. Yeah. The story about the Missouri that I thought was kind of interesting, just because people know the name John McCain, so it's a yes. it's a modern day reference that they can relate to, yes. is his granddad was on the Missouri when the surrender papers were were signed. He didn't want to be there. He wanted to go home to his wife. He then got his commanding officer said, You will stay here because you were critical to all of this. We want you to be there. Yes. So he stayed. He went home to his wife. And this is again John McCain's granddad. And uh, I think it was four days later while celebrating his coming home party with his wife, he dropped dead of a heart attack. Yeah. A death that was on the front page of the paper. That's how important he was to us. And it explains so much about how John McCain wound up in military service. And he, of course, w- would be tortured and uh, endured yeah. terrible things during and, and just, you know, his legacy uh, and and his family's legacy of sacrifice for country. He was only, I think, 61. He was a young man. But just the stresses of the war would take lives well beyond the end date of the surrender. <clears throat>
4: Yeah,
2: I just had the opportunity about a month ago to visit John McCain's grave at the Naval Academy in Annapolis and also um, Steve Belichick, who was the father of Bill Belichick and and others at the Naval Academy. And there are others who are buried at Arlington who are who are in the same boat, um, you know, just 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 men who who served. And in and, and our mission as a foundation is that we never forget that generation and unfortunately, it takes December 7th or September 11th for us to all of a sudden discover the American flag. And I wish it wasn't that way. But history, but history shows us that, unfortunately, the only times that we come together as a country is, is during those times we are attacked. But we do have the potential, and I underline that word potential, to come together for causes that can help America um, wow. as a whole.
3: I would love to think that we'll do it. I mean, the problem is now even hanging the flag is considered a partisan act. I mean, even now, according to the New York Times, if you put the flag out in front of your house, it means you're a Republican, which is absurd. That's absurd. There are still a lot of Democrats who love the flag, but it's being made. It's being made into a partisan uh, symbol. Can can I just spend a minute on this and and I'll wrap it up? But um, I read a story about how back to Pearl Harbor, the guys who were on the ships who are dying now, who survived and are dying now, if they so desire, they can have their ashes placed on the ships? Yeah.
2: If you were on the USS Arizona and and you were on the Arizona on December 7th, 1941, you can have your urn brought back to the battleship and interred in turret number four. Um, and that's the only situation um, if you are on the Arizona, let's say you spent the night in Honolulu on the night of December 7th, you're not eligible. But if you are on the Arizona on December 7th, 1941, and um, you would like to go and, rejo- and rejoin your, your crewmates, um, the, the folks at Pearl Harbor and the United States Navy will make that happen. So your urn will be taken by divers down to turret number four and And placed among the forty two or so urns who have been uh placed in turret number four since this all started in the early. 1980s. Um, if you're a Pearl Harbor survivor and you want your ashes brought back to Pearl Harbor, they can be spread in the harbor as well, or brought back to the USS Utah, which was a battleship um, also at Pearl Harbor. Um, it was not an active battleship, um, but it's 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 interesting because we've attended some of these ceremonies where the the um, sons or daughters or grandchildren of these survivors have had their urns returned to their crew to the to the crew. So there are about 900 plus who are still entombed on the USS Arizona, who never left the battleship after December 7th, 1941, of the 1177 who died. And at some point in their life, they decide that they want to rejoin their crewmates. And one guy, Raymond Harry, who is from the state of Rhode Island, never talked about the USS Arizona after after Pearl Harbor, he never mentioned the fact that he had a strong connection. But on his deathbed, he decided that he wanted to rejoin his crewmates. So it was left up to his granddaughter to carry the urn back through New Jersey and Dallas and Honolulu and to have divers at the USS Arizona um, in a ceremony take his urn and bring his urn back to turret number four on the Arizona and put it in there with about 42 other urns. And to me, it's probably one of those most amazing things I've ever witnessed is a man who never, ever talked about Pearl Harbor, who never, ever wanted to go back to visit Pearl Harbor post-World War II, was offered the chance to go back and see the memorial that was built And to uh, see the oil that was leaking from the battleship, to smell the oil that was leaking from the battleship, he never wanted anything to do with it. Never wanted to talk about it. But on his deathbed, he decided, "I want to rejoin my crewmates."
3: The Navy diver uh, who is responsible for lowering the remains in uh, said as follows in one in one report quote It's a large hole. We place the urn through, and then you can kind of feel it release. I tell the family when I feel that pull." It's the ship accepting back one of its own. Oh, my goodness.
2: I mean, it's to to be on the Arizona Memorial when that flag is presented to a granddaughter and then to watch the divers bring the urn down to, to turret number four and placed in with the rest of the guys who wanted to go back after I mean, that, that to me tells me that the defining moment of their lives happened when they were 17 or 18 years old. The defining moment of their life didn't happen when they were 40 or 50 or 60 or 30. It happened when they were a teenager. It happened when they were 18 or 20 years old. And, and, and that to me is an incredible thing to have the defining moment of your life happen when you're a teenager and to know that. Anything else you did in the rest of your life would be insignificant to what happened during your time in World War II. And a lot of these guys took such risks after the war. They started their own businesses, they became cab drivers or plumbers, or Jack Taylor founded Enterprise Rent-A-Car, or or the men who came back founded U-Haul because they had been through the worst of their life. They had been through the ultimate risk in their life that anything else after that was just
3: gravy. And yet, I, I find that they, fascinating. They, they never accept the word hero. They, oh no, they, they'll kick you. They'll kick you they, in the knee. They won't allow it. You've documented that <laughs> as well, and this is one of the sound bites that jumped out at us. Um, so beautiful from this is again from your second uh, piece on on D Day remembered, uh, Sat twenty two.
0: I'm not the hero. I'm not I'm, I'm not the, the, the hero I'm just a survivor the heroes most of the heroes over there under the white crosses that you all know about and their mothers and their fathers and their brothers and their sisters and even their children of some of those people those are the heroes of this war we're the survivors now and I'm glad you feel that way but and I hope you always do because democracy and liberty are are, are too precious and until I came over here. I didn't realize how fresh it was. Yeah. Day of. Days. Yeah, that
2: was Chris Heisler. Chris was in the 507th Parachute Infantry Regiment. And he was landed on D-Day and was taken prisoner on, on June 7th, 1944. And, um, and, and if you call these men heroes, um, they will cut you off right away. And they will say the heroes are buried in these cemeteries and they're just there's that survivor's guilt, I think, that any veteran faces that why why the guy in the left of me was killed and why the guy in the right of me was killed and why I was spared. And that generation is really in tune with that. And, um, so when, when I, I make the mistake, every blue moon of saying, you know, Hey, you're a real hero. I know. And then I brace for the kick (laughs) in the knee and and, and I say, these guys are going to beat me up because they're always to a man or a woman. They're going to say that the heroes are buried in the American cemeteries. And I said, God, how humble is that?
3: Before we go, I'm going to end it on this, um, on D-Day. Yep. FDR, who was president, he died in office. That's why Truman took over by the time we dropped the bomb. Um, offered remarks to the country, which was unaware that this battle was underway and concerned for their loved ones who were over there fighting this treacherous fight. And in part, he offered the following prayer. Listen.
6: Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation." This day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed. But we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph.
3: Wow, well, those words from FDR, a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion and our civilization and to set free a suffering humanity. Our yeah. sons will triumph. And they did. They did triumph. And we, they have the, the gratitude of generations after generations uh, here in America and beyond. Tim, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure getting to meet you and getting to watch your work. Uh, keep it up. All the best to you.
2: Thank you, Megan. It's, it's been great to watch your career
3: as well and keep up your great work as well. Oh, God bless America. Yes, definitely. From World War II, back in time to World War I. Tomorrow, we go back to the First World War, the Great War, as it was known, with a historian. And guess what? Doug Brunt, who is also a historian, yes, my husband, will join the party when we go to World War I tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear.
1: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life.